Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It's Friday. It's June the 23rd. It's uh, 8.30 here in Texas, America. It sounds like we are streaming live. We got the thumbs up in the chat. Thanks so much to all of you that are paying attention and giving me that heads up. And uh, let's talk about what we're going to do today. We're going to connect some dots. Now, uh, I promised you Steve Friend on Friendly Friday, and I don't have Steve Friend, but I've got at least as good... Maybe better for right now, especially when Steve Friend is running around in the airport. He just told me that TSA confiscated his hair gel, the $2.99 hair gel that he carries from Walmart. So way to go, TSA. Thanks for keeping America safe. We're really proud of you. I think we're proud of what you are all doing, and you are keeping us uh, protected from those dangerous January 6th travelers and also Steve Friend, American hero and federal whistleblower, so that his hair is not kept in place. That is... Uh, that is a great victory. He just told me uh, Bin Laden wins when that happens. I think he may be right. Uh, before we jump into my guest, who you will be very pleased to see, I want to uh, bring up my sponsor really quick here. I want to thank my friends over at Patriot Coolers. You guys know them. I'm going to uh, bring in my Patriot Cooler with me. I'm on my way to New Hampshire later on today, and it is already packed up. This is the, uh, the view of their hard coolers, which I'm not going to be bringing one of those suckers because they are monstrous and they are very capable. They can keep ice for days, much like a Yeti or an Arctic or an Igloo, except they say Patriot. They are made by this Houston company that I've been working with. They have been supporting our show, literally our first sponsor, and I'm really pleased for them to be out there taking care of us. Let's take care of them as well. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, promo code Kyle, Someone told me I'm supposed to sell, spell it out uh, phonetically since I'm used to doing that, but uh, I'm not going to do a phonetic. Uh, <laughs> so do promo code Kyle. You'll get 10% off. You'll get free shipping over $50. If you buy any of their uh, their bigger items, that's an easy thing to do, or you get two tumblers. Uh, that will also get you free shipping. Again, promo code Kyle for 10% off. And uh, let's also talk about Catholic Vote. These are our friends that are keeping the lights on here at the Seraphim Household, an outstanding organization and something that we have something really special brewing with. I wanted to actually bring up on Catholic Vote, they have a uh, an email chain that comes out. The email is called The Loop. I've told you guys about it before. If you look at the main page right here, you can drop your email and your zip code and get timely information. I pulled this up today, and the Loop email which really does keep you looped in, has all kinds of stuff. In fact, I could probably do my entire show for Friday off this if I didn't have my special guest. They have uh, an article about the Biden administration backing down about a trans uh, a trans mandate that they had for doctors. They've got a whistleblower piece here talking about DOJ, FBI, IRS, all discussing how the, uh, the, the federal government is giving Hunter Biden a special pass, which we talked about last time. They've got a piece about Alito, the, uh, the Supreme Court justice. They've got another one about uh, some controversial teachers union head that's going to be working with the cabinet, uh, the Biden administration, the House Center on Adam Schiff. Really all the stuff that you're going to want to know uh, about what's going on into your days. You can start there with that loop. So check them out. And uh, without too much further ado, I want to start connecting some dots, and we're going to do so by bringing on my friend, your favorite. This is the Garrett O'Boyle, a.k.a. G-O-B Actual. Garrett, welcome back to the Kyle Serafin Show, buddy. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. Uh, thanks for agreeing to show up with me in the morning over there. And yeah. tell people about that uh, shirt you're sporting, because if you're not watching the Rumble channel, you're missing out on a great visual. 
Here we go. This is uh, prototype number one of uh, Suspendables shirt that we've been working on, some designs. And uh, the back, I'll see. I, I don't know if oh, I can really Yeah, I don't know if you're going to be able to do that. Is that the suspender die? Yeah, it's the suspender die. So it's a it's a play on the joiner die flag, and there's some uh, some layers in there. Once uh, once we send out the photo or whatever, that you guys will hopefully pick up on. Yeah, it's got the uh, it's got the snake that's all cut into pieces. This is the joiner die thing that started from the original colonies when they were talking about whether or not they would uh, go about the American Revolution. Uh, it's a good looking shirt. What color is that? Is that like an olive drab? Yep, it's like an OD, yeah. Okay, and you're not seeing the chat, but people are saying hello to you, Garrett, so thanks for joining us. Um, I want to connect some dots. I want to get into a discussion about this most recent situation. And uh, what we saw was this week, who who actually released this? Empower Oversight put this out, right? Uh, These are the guys like Jason Foster and Tristan Levitt, who you sat on a panel with in front of Congress. They, uh, They shared a whistleblower affidavit. Did you get a chance to read that? I did. Okay, I'm going to bring it up here on the screen with both of us, I believe. Let's see if uh let's see if Kyle's uh, tech skills make it. So, here's the uh here's the affidavit. This is their story. It just says a top official with the FBI has followed a protected disclosure with the Office of the Inspector General alleging that FBI Director Paul Abate, Deputy Director rather, uh, told the bureau's internal critics that uh, January 6th related casework was the most important thing, and if they were not going to uh, work it or they didn't think it was righteous, then they should seek employment elsewhere and offered to personally address these subordinate agents. So that's always kind of fun. Uh, This is a fantastic piece, folks. If you're not uh, following John Solomon, please do so. And he writes at justthenews.com. That's his news organization. He's a friend of our show and uh, a friend of America since he's been out there kind of fighting this fight in many ways. So what is is your takeaway? Because we're going to connect some dots here. This whistleblower's allegation goes back to 2021, February 2021, right? Right. Um, I mean, my yeah, first takeaway there is I I wish they would have uh, came forward a little sooner. I mean, I don't know what took them so long. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of frustrating. But at the same time, I'd like to give them a little grace because, you know, I, we're, we're not very far removed from our own whistleblower activities and retaliation and things that are continuing to happen today. So I want to try to be a little bit graceful because I'm grateful for every single one that does come forward, whether they want to be named or not. Like this one wanted to stay anonymous. I don't really blame them. You know, I I don't. Uh, But that being said, with Paula Bate, I think it was last week, maybe the week before uh, he was uh, up on the Hill testifying as well. And uh, if you, if you got a chance to see that, I mean, he's, he's what the type of person I've been talking about ever since I came out publicly after the hearing, he's filled with hubris. He doesn't answer questions. He doesn't want you or the American people to know what the FBI is doing and why he just wants to keep you under their thumb. Yeah, that's true. Um, and he, and he does seem like really arrogantly proud about this stuff. He's telling people that are senators that are theoretically, uh, the elected representatives of the people, uh, that I'm not going to answer these questions and I'm not going to get into that with you, Senator. I mean, talk about somebody who knows that they don't have any possible scrutinies. Like what, what's going to ever happen to that guy? Right. Right. Yeah. And that, I think that's part of the overall problem in that hubris they've seen and they know from their predecessors that they can pretty much get away with whatever they want. I mean, for me too, it, it even ties into the Durham hearing. Like uh, Congressman Gates, I was especially appreciative of his uh, questioning of Durham because he kind of held him over the fire a little bit, saying, 
what's actually going to happen to the people who did something wrong here, like James Comey and Peter Strzok and whatever else. And he even mentioned Kleinsmith, the one who authored an email so they could get a FISA renewal. And he's practicing law again in Washington, D.C. Like, this is crazy. So Paula Bate, he knows all that. So he's like, I can literally sit up here in Stonewall and do whatever I want and even threaten to fire employees over January 6th and nothing will ever happen to me. I'm eventually going to walk away with my pension and get a sweetheart deal at some place like GE, like our good friend Jen Moore recently signed on to. Yeah. Let's let's uh, talk about that in just one second here because I think that's worthwhile. I'm going to actually bring up the the specific article uh, that we were talking about. This is actually the letter. So you can see if you're not watching our Rumble channel, you're missing out on seeing the Empower Oversight Whistleblowers and Research um, letterhead. And uh, this is a letter that's written to all the members of the Weaponization Committee and then also the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, including people like Chuck Grassley and Ron Wyden and so on. And uh, essentially what it does is it uh, lays out that this affiant, the the gentleman that we're going to actually quote in just one second here, heard the FBI deputy director that's going to be the number two guy in the FBI. Uh, this would have been someone that uh, that had all the authorities to make this happen basically state that there was a significant difference between people who were rioting and destroying property and running amok in American cities in 2020 and the domestic terrorists who uh, decided to riot and and do the same thing at the Capitol. Um, and so we're going to kind of I want to quote some of these things directly and get your reaction to that, if you don't mind. Uh, this is this letter was actually drafted by Tristan Levitt. Once again, the guy that sat on the uh, the panel with you and uh, we'll say. So the affiant declares who he is. He says he's an FBI special agent with more than 15 years of experience. He's been in a leadership position for more than 10 years. So we can assume that probably closer to 16 years, one of those um, six years and then picking up a special, um, what do you call it? Supervisory special agent job, the SSA position. Says he's over 18. He's competent to testify. These are pretty pretty standard things. Uh, asking that he remains confidential for fear of retaliation. I think we can all appreciate that, as you just mentioned. And obviously, if you don't do that sort of thing, you get the uh, the fun and chance to become a suspendable uh, in real life. You, yeah, I guess you're a suspendable if you come forward. You get to actually get suspended if you, if you speak up, right? Yeah. So, uh, so this is what he says. He's providing a sworn declaration to advise that the deputy director of the FBI, that's Paula Bate, threatened employees who criticized the FBI's response and tactics related to investigations of January 6, 2021, also known as J6. And then he goes on with what his actual statement was. He says that uh, on Wednesdays at about 3 p.m. Eastern time, the deputy director and the FBI director host a video conference which addresses all the FBI's divisions. So the special agents in charge, including uh, your special agent. Char Who was your special agent in charge? Charles Dioub was his name, uh -huh. which we, I mean, Where's we can get into that a little bit. I got some some late-breaking news on him. Okay, well, let's hold it for one second, because I, I want to hear that, too. <clears throat> so uh, all the, the field offices are run by a special agent in charge, except the ones like Washington Field. They have an assistant director in charge. People are kind of starting to become aware of the FBI's org chart, especially if you listen to us. They have all the uh, legal attachés, which are the FBI um, detailees to the State Department that hang out in an embassy overseas and coordinate the FBI's efforts overseas. And then the headquarters division heads, uh, and they go to this thing called a secure video teleconference, or SVTC. All of these division heads and executive assistant directors, which would include people like special agent in charge Jennifer Moore, um, and then also eventually executive assistant director Jen Moore and executive assistant director, what's her name? Larissa Knapp, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. Larissa. She used to sign her emails Larissa, by the way. That used to make me want to puke. 
Uh, anyway, so they would all get together, the deputy director, the assistant deputy director, and they would all address the audience on various topics of interest to these senior executives that were out there literally running the FBI. And he says that in February, this is paragraph seven, February of 2021, the newly appointed deputy director, because Paula Bate, I want to say, took took over in January. It was a very new position for him, but it might have been actually as new as February. Anyway, he's brand new to the role at this time. This goes back two years now to change. And it says he took over to address the meeting of FBI personnel, including the individual, the affiant who is making this testimony. So he was part of this conference. And he stated that he had come to his attention that some of the employees of the FBI questioned the FBI's investigative response to the events on January 6th, that he heard some employees were contrasting this response uh, of January 6th with the response to the post-George Floyd protests and riots in the summer of 2020. The deputy director told the audience that anyone who questions the FBI's response or his decisions regarding that response to January 6th did not belong in the FBI and should find a different job or something to that effect. Then he stated that the FBI's response to January 6th was consistent with the uh, the summer riots of 2020. He argued the FBI was applying all appropriate resources in each situation, and he challenged the SACs that if they had an employee that did not agree, this is again a quote, that the SACs could have the employee call deputy director abate personally, and he would set them straight. The affiant states that he witnessed hundreds of director SVTCs, these secure conferences, and he had never seen a direct threat like that at any time, that it was chilling and personal, communicating very clearly that there would be consequences for anyone who questioned his direction. It goes on a little further, but I think that's going to be the piece of it. And then he references a, a letter, which I'm going to put up on the screen as well. And Garrett, you're not going to be able to see this, but this is a letter. Are you familiar with the letter that came in through the FBI vault? Uh, yeah, yep. I read that too. Maybe paraphrase it for folks, and then um, I will actually uh, bring it up here in a second. And we can talk about it, like the actual direct quotes out of it. I know it's a little small on the screen, folks. So is this the one that has a little bit of those redactions in it? It, it does indeed. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, so it's... Uh, let me actually just pull it up myself real quick. So we'll, I'll do a quick quote from it here. Um, what we're saying here is that this is a external email that made it to Paula Bate, and then he sends it on to somebody else. And it says, thank you, blank, for sharing everything below. And he obviously forwards it within the FBI because it's the from line is what we're seeing. This is the result of a FOIA. And people, you can find this at vault.fbi.gov. This is a FOIA that I will probably post. It's known as dump underscore seven. And while Garrett's pulling that up, I'll just read a couple pieces of it. It just says, hello, Paul, someone who is obviously familiar with Paul Abate, knows him personally. Uh, I know how occupied you must be with the investigation of the Capitol insurrection because it's an insurrection and the larger scale preparation for inauguration week. If I didn't believe this was of significant importance, I wouldn't be sending you this email while you're in that crush. No good way to say it. I'll just be direct from my firsthand and secondhand information from conversations since January 6th. There is at best a sizable percentage of the FBI employee population that felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol uh, and said it was no different than the BLM protests of last summer. Several lamented the only reason that this violent activity was getting more attention is because of political correctness. I think uh, many listeners of this podcast are going to agree with that sort of situation. And then he says, here's a sampling of the things. I find it very interesting that he talks about blue states, red states, and purple states. The uh, apolitical FBI is going to bring all those things up. And this is essentially what he said, that there's 70% of a counterterrorism squad, roughly 75% of the Asian population in an office, uh, unknown office, disagreed with the violence but understood the frustration understood that the protesters got carried away. I think that seemed eminently true. He was uh, very concerned that the far-right news media outlet Newsmax was on the TV on one of the squad areas. And uh, then he spoke to some black agents, which he refers to as African-American agents, who turned down 
uh, asks to join the SWAT team because they didn't trust every member of their office in the SWAT team to protect them in an armed conflict. I know you were a SWAT team member, so I'm going to have you reflect on that as well. And then yeah. talked about a senior analyst who has a uh, has since retired and is now in a free speech sort of realm, no longer an FBI employee, but has a Facebook page full of Stop the Steal content. Uh, I wonder if this is where Marcus Allen's Stop the Steal uh, allegations went against him and the... Um, what do they call it? The conspiratorial allegations. Anyway, so he just talks about this. This this um, this page is actually cut off. We don't get to see all of it, but you've got the the email in front of you. What are your yep. reflections on this email going back to to tw this was what what day was it? January twenty twenty one, like yeah. a week after. Yeah, January thirteenth. Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So I mean, this thing is littered with just um, fear mongering and conjecture and racism, like the SWAT thing. That really stands out to me because. Kansas City was a small team. I mean, and it was mostly white guys, but let's be honest, most of the FBI is white people or a, the agent pool at least. Yep. And but we had um I think he's like a mix uh Latino and and white, I think, and then we had a we had a black guy for a while on but there. But you got to just guess cuz like who knows and who cares. Yeah, and he didn't care and like people would make fun of him for being like um Samoan and you know, it was all in good fun and you know, people would make fun of me be, because like my long hair and, but then it's like, wait, you're Irish. And you know, like <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with, 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 uh, people's race. And I mean, it's not even like an underhanded, Hey, SWAT guys might be racist. It's basically saying, Oh, black guys in the FBI are afraid of SWAT team members because they're white supremacists. I mean, th that's how I read that really. Right. And, and, and it's up here at the upper levels of the FBI, again, because they're up in their ivory tower and they have no clue of what is really going on in the real world or the real parts of the FBI because they've been in and out of headquarters for so long. That's all they really care about. They want to live in the swamp because they like that lifestyle. They like that ego pad that they get by thinking that they're part of whatever they think it is living in the capital region. And and yeah, the uh, the red, purple, blue state nonsense in here, and just alluding to uh, one of the, the part that stands out the most to me, it's it's our job to ask questions and to to say, hey, you know what? Just a few months ago in the summer, we had riots all across the country, and now we had something that wasn't good. I mean, it, it wasn't the what happened on January sixth wasn't good. It was boneheaded. I'll say it. I've been saying it all along. There were people who should be arrested from that day. Totally. I have no problem saying that because I've seen a lot of the video. I've seen, I've participated in a lot of the investigations. Well, not, a, I shouldn't say a lot, but all the ones that came into Wichita, which yep. it, it, it's a substantial amount because of how they were running it, because it was, you must do this. You must do it how Paula Bates says, or else. And I think that was reflective across the entire FBI because everyone I know from people from Quantico that are at different field offices to people up in Kansas City or whatever to Wichita, it was like nothing anybody had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, it's literally our job to wonder why that is and to ask why that is because FBI agents who were paying attention, they saw what was happening in Seattle where they boarded off, I think, like six square blocks of the city and said, hey, this is an autonomous zone now. Did you You're know that they me that's... did that outside the White House? Did you know that there was a, quote unquote, black house autonomous zone that was set up uh, in the end of June of 2020? 
I, I didn't know that. So <laughs> why did that but, not get so much coverage? Right. Well, how is that's not an insurrection? They're literally trying to seed parts of the country in and, D.C. of all places. Yeah. And the, and the FBI is not going to get involved with that. OK, that makes sense. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it really does make you wonder. And the, the other thing they mentioned it uh, in the in the Durham hearing the other day, confirmation bias. This whole investigation was riddled with confirmation bias. Um, I don't know if I if I talked to you about it. I've talked about it before, but one of my protected disclosures was regarding a January 6th lead that I got. And I won't go through the whole thing, but it essentially resulted in, it was an anonymous tip, which we know holds very little weight. But I said, you know what? Because I saw the way that this case was trending. I was like, all right, I got to do my due diligence like really well, better than normal probably uh, to, to run this to ground. So I start working on it. And along the way, over the course of maybe like a week, um, I get like additional leads and other stuff. One of the things I got was a facial recognition match, they claimed. And yeah. by that point, I had already pulled, I mean, I, like the first day I got the lead, I pulled the guy's most recent uh, DOT photo. And he's- DOT you know, is a driver's license photo, yeah? Yeah, yep. And so he, he's bald and he's probably 300 pounds, no facial hair. Okay. And the facial recognition match that I had was a guy who was probably like 100, 150 pounds lighter, full head of hair. And I'm like, well, what the heck is going on here? So I tracked down like the guy at the lab who um, said it was a match. And and he's like, well, I, I, I send him the DOT photo. And right away on the phone, he's like, no, that's not. He's like, Dis disregard what I sent you. Somebody in Kansas City sent me a different photo. And so I ended up tracking that person down. And I, I told them the whole course of events. And I was like, dude, you used a, a driver's license photo from about 25 years or 20 years, somewhere in there, maybe 23 years prior. And the guy was adamant that regardless, Quantico said I had a match. And I'm like, dude, that this is violating this guy's due process by moving forward with this. And he, he just continued to say, you have a match. They said you have a match. And then at the end, he was like, it's your case. Uh, you do whatever you want with it, but you still have a match. Right. Obviously, it is your case. That's the whole point, right? Like one yeah. way or another, it, like you're the one who gets to decide whether or not you're going to work it, how you're going to work it. And then you're you're the one who's supposed to say, OK, in, in light of all this information, do I continue on? Are there logical investigative steps when this is clearly not the person that I'm, right. uh, you know, that I'm being told that it is? Yeah. And so, I mean, I know people would say, well, that's just an anecdotal example. OK. Sure. But once you start building a body of evidence, look at all the like what just came out with Paula Bate or this uh, FOIA email that that we pulled up or Steve Friend's protected disclosure information. I mean, it it is it's it should be readily apparent to everyone that this is like a very politically motivated and uh, confirmation bias filled investigation. Do me a favor. Um, you said something about collecting the dots the other day, not connecting, but collecting. Will you kind of yeah. say where you came up with that idea? Because I think it's interesting. And also, it's a good book recommendation. Sure. Yeah. So uh, there's a book out there um, by a guy named Pete Blaber, B-L-A-B-E-R. And uh, it's called The Mission, The Men, and Me. And I first read that book in either late 2008 or early 2009 when I was deployed to Iraq. And it's been my favorite book other than the Bible ever since then. It's my most gifted book. Um, that, that's when I give a gift, a parting gift, or just a gift to someone who I think is 
who would be appreciative of the principles laid out in that book, uh, that's that's what I that's what I do. I, I give them a copy. I have, I think I got like three left. I bought a box of them, <laughs> and uh, I've been giving them out over the years, you know. And uh, there's a part in there where he says, uh, in order, it's I, I'm paraphrasing. I might have it not quite right, but in order to connect the dots, you first have to collect the dots. And that has always stood out to me because, especially with how my brain works, and then getting into law enforcement. And then, uh, you know, coming into the FBI, like as investigators, especially when our duty is to balance people's constitutional rights with proper enforcement of the law, there's a lot of collecting you have to do to ensure that you're doing that right. And I'm not saying I, I do it right all, or that I did it right all the time, but it, it was always vastly important for me to uh, think of what what my own confirmation biases are, what my own filter is like, and uh, to try to put those things to the side to ask the right questions to collect the correct dots that would then help me connect the proper dots to get to a logical conclusion uh, at the end of whatever investigation or whatever type of case you know I might have been working on. And honestly, even like just in life, like a lot of the principles in that book, um, I think they're not only good for our professional life, but they're good just for our life in general. Yeah, I think that's part of the, the nice thing about uh, sort of the way military training goes, the way that military experience is. It's, it's a much more aggressive version of what happens in normal life, but it is still something that is almost always applicable to sort of the way that we live, the way that um, we experience things. It gives us a lens to come after and and try to uh, shape what it is that we're taking in on inputs and, and then you know, how do we appropriately respond to it? In a lot of ways, measured responses are really necessary because I think doing aggressive training, doing aggressive work, being involved in things that are outside the range of most people's daily experience, it does turn the volume down on things that are crazy. And it keeps you from going, you know, this is an insurrection. When you've probably actually been part of and witnessed what a real insurrection looks like, I'm pretty sure you threw some rounds down range in anger that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and I mean, that's, you know, that's another part like of my filter. I remember when I did my, which this is a thing the FBI doesn't do, maybe they should. Um, I did a psyche eval heading into my police department, like it was part of their hiring process. And I told the shrink um, that my filter was sand colored because, and that really stood out to him. And uh, because of my, my time overseas, a year in Iraq, a year in Afghanistan, and yeah, putting down rounds in anger. Uh, it's funny that you said it that way as well, because I just talked to a guy who was in my one of my very first platoons, and he's trying to help me get a job, perhaps. And uh, he's like, dude, a lot of the people that that we that I work with, he's like, they've never fired a round in anger, you know, and it's like, it's yeah, a thing. and, and uh, you know, it. So yeah, that's that filter for me. And then uh, so that is part of my decision making process. And so when I see something like January 6th, which again, was not good, but the only um, deadly type of violence that I saw, and this includes all the video I watched that America hasn't seen, it, because I was an active FBI agent at the time. So we watched a substantial amount of video regarding one of the uh, one of the, the leads we, we had, which that one en did end up in an arrest. Um, but the the worst violence that I saw was when Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Right. And it's like, wait a second. Like, I've been around guns and use of force and 
the weight that that comes with for a long time. I mean, uh, overseas, you know, it's not like it is in law enforcement here, but it's similar because if you were to just kill some Iraqi woman, like you'd get you'd get UCMJ'd for that, you know, and rightfully so. UCMJ is the universal. I'm sorry. What, um, um, uniform Code of Military thank Justice. You. God, man, yeah. that just went right away from me. I just went <laughs> like into another world. Uh, uniform Code of Military Justice, and that is the law that you operate under. Uh, in addition to any U.S. laws, that is a stricter standard that you abide by both domestically and overseas when you work for the U.S. military. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, you can't just uh, send it and think that this is. Everything is covered. You know, you're, you're at war, so all things are covered. No, there are rules, which people don't realize, but there are rules of war. There are right. rules of engagement. And mm-hmm. uh, and you have the same things when you're a federal agent. You're, theoretically, I think, theoretically, you're supposed to um, be judicious in your use of force. You're supposed to be judicious, judicious in all uses of force, not just deadly force, but, right. um, you know, less than lethal force. And then also even bringing people into custody. When you start detaining people and removing their ability to uh, to live their life freely— uh, that is a that's a heavy a heavy burden that should be at least weighed before you go and take any action. I know you and Steve were sharing this um, privately, maybe yesterday or the day before. Would you would you weigh in on that? The sort of the gravity, yeah, of uh, yeah, of, sure. of, of of taking someone's freedom as a as a law enforcement officer, either state, federal, or or yeah. local. Yeah, for sure. So it's uh it, it's weird because ever since I let's see, when I got out of the army. Um, I started going to school for uh, criminal justice to get into law enforcement. And then, you know, with, within a couple of years, I, I get hired. And uh, the two courses in college that stood out the most probably to me were criminal law and constitutional law. And I liked them, uh, but I also realized, I think right off the bat, how important they were to anyone who was entering the law enforcement field. And I never really talked about that to anyone. I thought like, oh, everybody's probably thinking this, you know? And then I get hired at the PD and I, you know, in the four years I was there, I realized like, oh, not everybody actually does think this. Like there are some guys who just think their job is literally to put handcuffs on everybody. And it's where where I was like, again, it goes back to that balance of, of people's rights versus proper law enforcement activity. And so in short order, and I will credit uh, one of my FTOs, field training officers, especially, uh, honestly, all three I had were, were great. Um, but uh, one of them, especially uh, him and I, we bonded real well. And he had a similar mindset, more of a libertarian mindset. And he, he I remember him telling me once that the longer he did the job, the more laissez-faire he got and and not in a bad way like we often think of the french as as not you know but uh (laughs) he he, uh he uh was like yeah the longer i do it the more i've come to realize what are the alternative solutions to the problem and so i i picked that up in my first six months you know as a new cop right and then coming from my military background where in iraq and afghanistan even though it was occupied by America, like it was still like a totalitarian regime because they had Sharia law and uh, customs and traditions were very different. And it was readily apparent that like the police and the military there, not all of them, there were some good guys, especially in Afghanistan in my experience, but in Iraq, pretty sure the whole police force we worked with was corrupt because at one point, like we had the Iraqi army come through and like do a sweep and they found out like 
the Iraqi police were selling Glocks that America was buying for them and stuff. And it's like, did you say Glocks or Glocks? Glocks, like the the yeah the sidearms we were buying for them to issue to them, and they'd be like, oh, we lost them. And in fact, they were selling them to like Al Qaeda or whatever. But oh, perfect. So uh, yeah, so again, with that background coming into law enforcement in America, it was like I've I've seen it already to a degree done wrong, and e- even I've had a couple of my own personal experiences with law enforcement that weren't great. And it's like, I don't want to be a cop like that. And yeah. that's not what America deserves and, or, or the community that a cop works in. But so that it was always weighty for me to, because also don't get me wrong. There are times when absolutely, yes, people must be taken into custody or absolutely. Yes. Physical force must be used. And I don't like either of those things, but I'm ready, willing, and capable of implementing them when necessary. And I think that's often lost on people because they're like, whatever, I'm just going to throw cuffs on them and take them to jail. Where it's like, dude, where are your problem-solving skills? Isn't that more appropriate? Or um, instead of, we, when, I was a, when I was a cop, we would call it pimping. And it'd be like, oh, yeah, he's, that other officer, he's pimping them. And, and that is when they're, instead of using verbal judo, they're being confrontational with, someone that we're dealing with on a call and they're like trying to get them to get under their skin to get them to to get into like a scuffle so then they can use their own force and take them into custody and it's like that's not that's not proper law enforcement and i know it happens all it happens all over sure no it definitely does i want to want to drag it back into the uh the dots that we've sort of collected and then we might start connecting when you were getting these January 6 cases and you're a judicious use of force guy which you've just demonstrated and I think uh you know America is worse off because we don't have a Garrett O'Boyle out there as an FBI agent or as a cop anymore I know we had that conversation privately it's like what do you do when you look at your resume right. um yeah. but uh you know you're a judicious use of force guy you've got this January 6 investigation that's being um, sent over towards you and they're telling you to go and do it and I can't imagine that you were like, yeah, gung ho. I think that uh, in the same way that you've just explained, you have to look at these things in sort of a, a slow moving, moving and methodical, uh, you know, you, you handle things according to what the facts of the case are. If the guy's 150 pounds more, you don't go knock on the door because that's not the guy. Um, right. So how did you experience sort of the management structure? What was their reaction to any of your, your takes and your sort of judicious use of force mindset? So I, I wonder how lucky I was compared to other people out in the field because my supervisor at the time brought up the previous summer. So he was aware of the two tiered system that was in place. And he said, we didn't do a command post or any of this for that. And then on top of it, guys on my squad, like my whole squad, as far as I know, pretty similar minded mm-hmm. and which was good because it made for, for a good working environment. I mean, we're all different and other than the TFOs, we all came from different parts of the country, but overall it was similar mindset of, of how to properly do this. So, and, and in fielding these leads. So for my, that particular one, it, so, I mean, imagine this, it's, it's essentially a guardian lead that I got. Granted, it was yeah, pushed break, break as, that as down a lead. again for people, just because we're we're speaking jargon a little bit. Okay, um, so <laughs> I, uh, I'm not criticizing. Sorry. I'm I'm just sharing. People will go like a guardian. What's, lead. That? What's that all about? Yeah. yeah. 
so basic it's basically somebody calling into dispatch you know and yeah. saying hey i want to re remain anonymous but here's the information i want to provide but you know that first went to dc and then came out to me but so it's just a simple lead which oftentimes you can cover that with a paragraph in your report mm -hmm. this ended up being one of the longest reports i've ever written and i did that because i knew full well if i didn't um run down absolutely everything and explain absolutely everything within uh, the context of due process and relevant case law, which I don't think I've ever cited constitutional Supreme uh, Supreme Court case law in a report, but I did in this report. Yeah, sure. Because I thought it was necessary in order for them to not be able to come back and say, you have to do what we're asking you to do. You're, no, and, you're totally right, because I, I threw out a bunch of January 6th leads as well. And I think you and I, you know, we didn't know each other at the time. We'd never met. This is going back to beginning of 2021. And yet all those leads came in and they were literally hundreds of thousands of leads. People, you've got to you've got to appreciate how many leads we are talking about. Um, hundreds of thousands of leads coming into Washington field office, which ended up, you know, in places like Garrett's field office as well. And I was dismissing them as they came in. Because on their face, they were ridiculous. They were ridiculous for the FBI to be involved in. It wasn't an FBI matter, even in, even in the, the least. They were simply local matters and or grievances and or completely unfounded allegations that didn't bear any scrutiny when you have 500,000 leads coming in. you got to find the ones that are useful. And this is pretty common. Like a case agent would normally go out there, use their discretion. But I was also citing the Bill of Rights and sort of the First Amendment protected activities, why we wouldn't go after it. And so I'm, I'm citing theoretically the things that we all swore an oath to, which says that we cannot engage in behaviors that are running down people's personal grievances or their political feelings, because that's not the business of the FBI. That's just not what they do. Right. It's interesting that and, you had the same instinct to do that. Yeah. And, it, you know, I'm glad I did. I'm glad you did. And hopefully there are many more out there who did. But I, honestly, I won't hold my breath because and also on top of that, I would say this. If I got a lead about which, of course, we know would never happen because of how the FBI is being run. If I got a lead from Portland or Seattle or Minneapolis that, you know, John Doe, and it's an anonymous tip that John Doe in, in you know, you know, bum F.E. Kansas is was was up there with the Antifa riots. Right. And they had information that I couldn't corroborate. And then I talked to to John Doe and John Doe tells me, I don't know what you think, you know, but I know that whatever I was doing on that day. I was doing legally. And then I get a driver's license photo that's 20 years old for this Antifa member. Right. I would do the same thing. That's right. It's not a which, political decision. No. And it's like, that's the job of an FBI agent or a law, for, a law enforcement officer. But it seems like people can't hold those two thoughts in their head at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's difficult for people to uh, even assess like what that involves and, and what their responsibilities are, I guess. They get so job task focused and so on. Uh, speaking of task focus, I've been kind of looking back and forth at the chat here. And uh, so Ryan Matt is in there. Thank you, Ryan, for for moderating. And folks, uh, if you have not hit the like button and you're watching our live stream, we really do appreciate that. If you are watching after the fact, by all means, hit that like button uh, on Rumble. If you're watching it that way, if you're listening to us, you can always give us one of those five star reviews, which we'll bring up at the end here. Um, you know, the, the whole point of being task saturated, being able to not focus on or being able to only focus on one thing is sort of the reason why they're supposed to have the hiring process they are. They're supposed to hire people with discernment. And I know you went through a rigorous process and I did as well. So it's sort of disappointing that we are not seeing that sort of um, 
that pushback. And it's also interesting in that that whistleblower letter that we just read, and I didn't finish it all down, but it brought up the Holocaust Museum. And I know some people think that you're being theatrical or that I'm being theatrical when I bring it up, that I'm talking about something because it has a lot of emotional impact and not because it has a lot of actual meaning to us. But uh, you and I shared that experience. We did it a couple years apart, and mm. it sounds like it actually resonated with this agent as well. What do you make of the impact of the Holocaust Museum trip at the FBI Academy? Maybe tell people what it is and then why it impacted you. Yeah, so it, it, it's a day that every employee who walks through Quantico's doors, so analysts, SOSs, agents, we all are there for enough weeks where they cut out one day to go up to D.C. and go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, and then after that, the uh, MLK Memorial as well. And it the whole point of I mean, even the director, he comes and speaks at the end, and the whole point of it is to say, you must be aware of what the depravity of man can lead you to. You must be aware of what history has shown us in order to do this job correctly. That was my biggest takeaway. And so, yes, when people then say, oh, you're being theatrical, bringing up Nazis or bringing up the Holocaust. Well, OK, well, then the FBI is being theatrical and having that event. Right. So but it, in actuality, you, me, we know others. And now in that in that letter, uh, it's obviously resonating with people as it rightfully should, because it is harrowing just to go through that museum. You know, it's not like we're even taking a trip to Dachau and seeing the empty camp or something like that. It, it's a museum, but it is it is a harrowing uh, journey uh, to go through there. Like I was emotionally spent when I was done and I could have spent many more hours in there, too. But it was like, oh, we got to go. And uh, on top of that, like because I had my law enforcement background, my military background, I've always liked history. Um, and the section where I learned about World War II uh, in high school was one of my favorites. And it sent me down this rabbit hole. And it's like, man, they hardly taught us anything about World War II. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying like I'm a World War II buff. I know some that, man, they, they've forgotten more about World War II than I would ever know. I had a but, team sergeant that whenever he would sneeze, he would sneeze and he would try to say the name of a famous World War II Marine Corps battle because he was a former Marine. <laughs> <laughs> so he would be like, Kimo, Kimo. you know, he would do this kind of a thing. It's uh, impressive. Yeah. And he would do, and he had 50 more of them that he would do that. I can't remember off the top of my head. I just remember him doing that one. But yeah, yeah. like you say, there are some people that really, really dig deep into it. It's a, it's an incredibly vibrant part of America's history. And in fact, it's actually a dividing line. I think for a lot of people, I took courses in college that were called pre-World War II history and post-World War II history, because since World War II, the pace has accelerated so dramatically. You can go pre-World War II and you can catch everything from the American Revolution, the Civil War and the First World War and sort of the big conflicts kind of in one little one little grab. And then, you know, World War II and on is really the modern world that we live in. And so I, I tend to agree with you. It was one of those formative things. There's a reason why they had like the boomer generation was literally people who came back from that war and created a baby boom because they right. had that post-war prosperity and it shaped the modern life that we live in. And until maybe, maybe that'll be a post-Afghan um, experience as well. I don't know what that's going to look like. There's probably a baby boom as well. Yeah, maybe. One thing I think about that with the, with the baby boom after World War II, I wonder how much of the, um, and I don't know how novel of an idea this is, but it's just something I've thought about where they come back from this horrific war and, and their deployments were very different than what ours were like. Yeah. So when I was deployed, it was a year and some guys would get extended to 15 months, 18 months at the most. But World War II, 
if you made it all the way through, you were there the whole time, you know, four, four years or so. And then you come back and you have, you know, they didn't call it P PTSD back then, but you have this trauma and these experiences, but you've now come to realize the importance of life, how fragile it is. And so I, I do wonder if part of the healing process is I come home from war, I find a wife or I come back to my wife yep. and we just start having kids because of how precious they are. And we want to rear them in the, in the right way. So we don't have to go to war again. You know, like it's weird it, after nine 11, I mean, I was a teenager, but I was like, let's go. And by the time I got out of the military and even more so since I'm about as anti-war as they come. So many, so many vets are in that same boat. I think that uh, you're not unique in that. I want to bring up some of the dots that we talked about, all right? And so I'm bringing up on the screen right now an article that you'll be familiar with. This comes from UncoverDC.com. This goes back to February of this year. So um, over a year, actually two years after that whistleblower piece. And um, folks, I'm just going to read it to you for those of you who can't see it. The, uh, the name of the article which strangely I can't, oh, there it is. It's over here on my right-hand side. I can't read it. It's written by Tracy Beans, who's a good friend of our show and has been uh, outstanding in supporting the suspendables. It's called Terminating Descent. The FBI merges insider threat training with whistleblower training. I know, Garrett, you're going to have some reflections on this, so I'm going to get to them. But let's first just talk about what happened. We found out in about February of this year, maybe late January, this is right after the Catholic piece came out, and we realized that the FBI was going after Catholics at, um, you know, at mass, calling them radical traditional Catholics and sort of targeting Christians in general. We find out that the FBI merged two types of virtual academy training, which are annual trainings that we do. One of them is whistleblower training, letting you know that you're allowed to be a whistleblower and theoretically are protected, which we found out the hard way is not true. And then uh, they also do a thing called the insider threat training, which is essentially looking for the next Robert Hansen. And folks, if you're not familiar with Robert Hansen, he's in a supermax prison for betraying this country as a spy working for the Russians, but employed by the FBI as a special agent. He was actually at headquarters. I think he was as high up as either a unit chief or a section chief. So he was a GS-15, top of the general scale uh, for pay. And so what they did is they combined these trainings. I want you, Garrett, to kind of reflect on it. People, you can go to this webpage right now. You can go to UncoverDC.com. Um, it's in my Twitter uh, timeline if you wanted to go find it there as well. But um this is a, I think, a very chilling moment that we were able to uncover, and obviously chilling for our colleagues as well. Maybe tell people what it means to combine these these uh, two trainings and what we saw out of it that maybe other people wouldn't. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's super chilling uh, because to an, another piece that's often forgotten is uh, whistleblowing as a federal employee. That's part of your First Amendment protected activity for you to go to Congress and tell them what's going on. And so when, when an agency like the FBI combines these two annual trainings, which to my knowledge, they've always been separate. In my experience, they were always separate. Now they're combined. Right off the bat, when that first broke, before I even read the article, before I even looked at the slide deck, I, um, I thought uh, they, they are intentionally trying to merge the two and chill the free speech, the First Amendment rights of employees who want to come forward. And then I think we there were some of the uh, some of the comments by employees who who said that exact same thing, that that's exactly what they're trying to do. And it's like, oh, OK, so I, I'm not wrong in initially thinking that. And I think that is what they were trying to do, because a lot of FBI whistleblowers had come forward. And then now the FBI is like, OK, how do we how do we quell dissent? And it was. Ah, we'll we'll threaten them by saying you're basically an insider threat if you want to whistleblow. 
That's right. So I'm, I'm kind of scrolling through the deck for people to be able to see it. And um, folks, if you're watching on the Rumble channel, you can see it. Uh, this is the really interesting part. So it gives you a little bit about what a whistleblower is, the protected channels, the way you can go about it. It talks about what an insider threat is and how you might identify those things. And then it says here at the end, attestation. And I'm trying to get rid of this little piece here. Unfortunately, I am uh, unable to, uh, to uh, figure this thing out. So we're going to lose Garrett here, it sounds like, for a second as... Uh, Garrett, you're gonna you're gonna sign off. Um, so I'm gonna let you go. You got another interview, and I'm really yeah. grateful that you stayed with me. Um, say hi to Emerald Robinson, folks. If you want to catch uh, Garrett, he'll be on Emerald Show today. So we'll go back to uh, just talking about this piece. But uh, see you, buddy, and All thanks right, for jumping ya. on. <laughs> yeah, sorry to jump off. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, bud. All right, enjoy see ya. it. So, folks, I want to uh, talk about this uh, this insider threat piece. What it says is there's an attestation at the end of it. Okay, and the attestation says essentially that. You attest that you've gotten this training, you've received the insider threat awareness, and you are aware that you have responsibilities related to your protected disclosures. Um, you fully comprehend who is considered a whistleblower, what that consists of, who the designated authorities are. In addition, you recognize that a that when in a managerial or supervisory role, communications by FBI employees to offices or officials outside the chain of command may be considered a protected disclosure under 5 U.S.C. 2303, which I often cite. And you also acknowledge that penalizing these FBI employees for violating chain of command if they're engaged in protective activities or that any retaliation against them is a violation of law. So they are actually trying to get people to agree that uh, that they can't go after whistleblowers. But at the same time, they're also making these like very interesting claims about who are the insider threats. And I'm going to read out what they claim are insider threats. People who possess an ideology that seriously conflict with the United States government's interest, criminal or other protected activity or prohibited activities, intractable financial problems. And I'll tell you this, having been around feds for a while, there are an awful lot of people that have no money that work for the federal government, despite that paycheck coming in every two weeks. And they are in dire straits if they lose it even for a few minutes, which I think is, um, I think it's very telling. Our, our federal workforce is paid quite well. And uh, for them to have serious problems financially, my buddy was a GS4 and made something like $50,000 a year. And uh, he was a firefighter for the, for the uh, forest service. Never had money problems, lived within his means. In the meantime, you have GS-13s and GS-14s at the FBI that are afraid they're not going to make their mortgage payment should they um, should they have a paycheck interruption. That should trouble a lot of us. But uh, for whatever reason, intractable financial problems, always there. Like I said, they're trying to catch the next Robert Hansen. Uh, substance abuse, that's pretty standard. Uh, sexual activities that are compromising or secretive sexual practices. That's kind of strange because there's definitely some of that going on, including what we found out, the deputy director of the FBI. Paula Bate. I had three different independent sources confirm that they worked with his girlfriend and his girlfriend was a female that was so bad at her job that she was actually going to be removed from the job, but instead was actually protected by Paula Bate and allowed to attend law school in another city than where she worked. So she essentially had a no show job and he signed off on this. And the reason he signed off on it was because that was his girlfriend. Um, I don't know if Paul Abate is married or not. Actually, people are not really sure because he's private about his personal life, which is totally fine. Except apparently when you're banging a subordinate, which is actually a big deal when you have a national security clearance, you shouldn't be compromised. It's literally one of the things they discuss as being a vulnerability. By the way, I was referred to the Office of Insider Threats as potentially vulnerable. God knows why. Uh, oh, here's why. Because highly egotistic or highly egotistical or excitement-seeking personality traits. I'm sure that's what they kind of claimed it was, since I like to have a, uh, a shoot out in the desert and have a conversation with a cop saying, hey, man, um, you're not within your rights to tell me not to exercise my civil liberties. 
And then the last one is family members in oppressive countries considered adversarial to the United States. My trading agent actually had that problem. He was discussed as a potential insider threat because of the fact that he was Chinese, ethnically Chinese, spoke Chinese, and still had family members that were living in China at the time. And they actually uh, they took him out of some of the the possibilities for advancement. He ended up going to Guam, and he's living the life on an island right now, as far as I know. But it is troubling that this is sort of the nature of the way the FBI looked at these things, and they combined that with this whistleblower thing. So are you excitement-seeking if you go to Congress and you expose malfeasance or wrongdoing? Um, let me just tease this out there. I know Ryan's sitting in here and he knows we're working on this. I have taken a bunch of these dots and we've showed you a couple of them today, connecting some of those dots. And those dots are going to make some connected dots. We've collected them. I'm sharing a few that we've collected. I'm going to connect them for you in a long form video. It's probably going to be sometime early next week and Ryan's going to work on it with me. When we do that, I think you're going to see a comprehensive case that takes the dots that we collected from the BLM riots, uh, things that happened in Washington, D.C. in June, the riots that happened in Portland from March to September, October, when I was there in Portland, uh, keeping an eye on what was going on, the way that we saw January 6th, and the whistleblower testimony that we just had in this affidavit, the um, this disclosed letter that was FOIA'd that discusses the political bias of former FBI senior executives and the way that they were handled, and also the way that all the suspendables were treated, including producer Phil, including myself, including a couple of guys that you don't know, but they worked for the National Security Branch, and they've been without a paycheck for over, I think, two years now, a year and a half at least. Um, guys like Marcus Allen, what happened to Garrett O'Boyle, what happened to Stephen Friend. Literally all of these things are all dots that can all be connected. And I'm going to connect them for you. Right now, we've shown you that we've collected some of these dots. And I promise you, the number of uh, articles that we have to go through is going to be pretty significant. So this is a dramatic production. But honestly, I think it is going to be sort of the, um, the big work that has been done so far since I've left the Bureau. This is the biggest and most important sort of testimony. And uh, luckily, we're in positions now to share it with members of Congress in a way that we've we've got those connections made. Um, I did speak to members of Matt Gates' staff the other day, and they're interested in it. When I laid it out, they were like, of course, of course that makes sense. Does anyone know about it? And of course, one of the last dots we found out is that the FBI is now internally investigating over 700 FBI agents, or 5% of the agent workforce, it sounds like, on uh, secret investigations that are not even being disclosed to their division heads, the people that actually supervise them. And that means that they're not able to take uh, promotions. They're not able to go any further. But it also means that the FBI might be getting rid of them in short order, in short form. That's kind of stuff is incredibly chilling. This is Stasi type things. This is secret police type work. And, you know, end of the day, it is actually terrifying in many ways for those of us who have been on the inside to know that they are doing these sort of things to their own people. Um, with that said, I am going to be flying to New Hampshire later on today, so I'm going to be signing off here just shortly. We're going to be going to the airport. If the uh, the air marshals are listening to us, they can join us there at the airport. I'd be happy to see them. Give me a high five. You don't have to hide it. I'll spot you anyway. Um, this is one of the most listened to podcasts apparently in the FBI, so uh, thanks to all my FBI listeners too. I wanted to say that. And I wanted to thank you who are giving us these five-star reviews that are really moving the ball forward. We've cleared the 550 mark. We're over 560 right now. And I want to read one from Sunday. This is by Charles Stage. It's called The Real Heroes of the FBI is the name of his uh, his rather long his rather long five-star review. I'm going to read it out to you. It says, uh, Mr. Kyle and the rest of the suspendables is why the FBI was one of the great law enforcement agencies in the world. Mr. Kyle and his friends continuously mention doing their job and being conscious of not violating the rights of Americans. Mr. Kyle and his group 
are so articulate, they're so knowledgeable and so honest about the role of the federal government the FBI should have in America, not the role that they do have in America right now. Once again, honestly, uh, or honesty in this podcast is so refreshing. And in fact, it's very addicting. I think the reason why it's so addicting is that we are just craving the truth. It goes on with even more flattering terms, but I do really appreciate what you had to say there, Charles. Uh, I read all these kind of five-star reviews that you guys send us, and you can get yours read on the air by going to the Apple podcast app and leaving us a five-star review of your own. Put a name that you want read, and uh, if it's too silly, we'll, we'll, we'll straighten it out. But I do really appreciate these. I, I really do read them, and it is you all, our listeners, that are moving this forward. It's a big deal. Uh, for us to clear the 500 mark, producer Phil said we'd get to 1,000 by the end of the year. I think we may get there far sooner with your help. And remember, you can actually rate any episode. It doesn't have to just be one and done. If there's something that moves you in a particular episode, if there's something you like, if there's a message you want to pass on to one of the suspendables, uh, they read these as well, y'all. So thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate all your prayers. They are keeping us buoyed, and we are thankful to our sponsors. Again, go ahead and visit patriotcoolers.com and use promo code KYLE, K-Y-L-E, for 10%. Go and sign up for that loop. Like I said, it's fantastic information every morning. It'll get you ready for whatever water cooler talk happens at your job at catholicvote.org. Folks, I will see you again on Monday. And uh, you can catch me on The Blaze midday. You'll have to look it up. There is a segment that I am doing. I'm sitting down on a stage with Vivek Ramaswamy. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what that man has to say and kind of picking his brain. I think he's one of the great reasons to have primaries, putting good information into our heads and uh, kind of sharing information with the rest of the candidates that I assume that Trump will win. There's no reason to think otherwise, but getting more especially the stuff that he's talking about. We're going to be talking about, quote-unquote, defanging, taking the fangs out of the deep state or the administrative state, as I like to call it. So um, look for that on Saturday, and I will see you all again for the Kyle Serafin Show on Monday morning. Have a safe weekend. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash kyleserafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.